0: Hi everybody. I am Ross De Leon, and this is Episode Five of *A Curious Character*. This episode is a conversation with Ryan Belen. Ryan and I went down the memory lane and chat about his journey from being an EC student in UP Diliman to doing a PhD researching how machine learning can be used in autism research. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ross. Okay, how are you? so I'm doing well. How are you?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's get into it. So uh, Rai, you are currently a PhD student, right? At University of New South Wales studying uh, human computer interaction. So um, just before the call, we were just talking, I was just briefing you on how the conversation would flow. So let's try to make it um, very natural or like basically just us talking and then people would like eavesdrop what we're talking about. So that's kind of like, the peg of this podcast. So yeah, as I mentioned, so you're currently doing your PhD in UNSW and um, could you tell us a little bit about what you're currently doing research on?
1: Yeah, so thank you for that introduction. Again, yes, my name is Ryan and I'm a PhD candidate at UNSW in Sydney, Australia and my research focuses on how machine learning can be used in autism research so in that sense it's an interdisciplinary area wherein we're also looking into the human-computer interaction side so it's not just about developing models that would have like high accuracy in diagnosing autism but also how clinicians can use this um, system for their um, diagnosis basically so that's just the gist of what I'm doing right now
0: right so yeah that's very interesting and and I actually found it uh, really interesting the first time you told me about it. Mostly because, as you know, I'm very interested in biomedical engineering and such. But um, you were my batchmate in UP Diliman where we both took up um, electronics and communications engineering. And when you think about it, uh, getting into like biomed track, it's kind of I feel like it's deviating a little bit to the original ECE like communications and such so how did you get into that field from your ECE background because I think it's an interesting journey getting there
1: yeah I have to agree that um like doing electronics and communications engineering is really broad as well in a sense that like you know you can do power electronics you can do microelectronics, and in my case i did digital signal processing so my lab was dsp which i think is closest to um, what i'm doing right now because it's all image processing and all those kind of stuff but the journey that i did was after graduating um ece at um up to i actually um worked as a freelance software engineer in a startup company and then um i wasn't really kind of like I didn't really enjoy doing what I was doing there so I decided to go back to UV and be a research associate in one of the labs and that was the ubiquitous Computing lab headed by Dr. Ovella Tienza. and in that lab we were doing like computer graphics and um, um, yeah computer graphics basically and then I worked there for a year and then I moved to Sydney Australia and then I met this uh, supervisor it's a really long um, story but just to like uh, cut it a bit. Yeah, I met this supervisor of mine who's been like supervising me for more than three years now. And um, when I was doing my master's with him, I was was still doing healthcare in a sense and um, ICT because I was Mm -hmm. developing assistive technology for older adults. But then the jump to like autism research, I was saying like, oh, for my PhD, I really want to do something that I think would be helpful for different people. So I guess that's, um, that's how I got into autism research. And right. we we met with different uh, collaborators so that we can make sure that what we're developing is actually going to be useful for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a long yeah. story. Yeah.
0: Um, going back, like going moving down the memory lane a little bit and going back to way back in, was it 2014 that you started doing your undergrad thesis? It was 2014, right? Because you graduated 2015. One year um, ahead of us. One year ahead yeah. of everyone.
1: <laughs> I think it's been five years now. Yes. Yeah, yeah
0: almost I'm, six. Uh, year, yeah, right. And then back years. then back yeah. when you we were an undergrad, like choosing which undergrad lab to go to is kind of like a make or break decision. It, because when you work there in that lab, like basically your training would just be based on or at least back then, based on what that lab focuses on. So If you could still remember why you decided to join DSP, could you tell us what was your mindset back then?
1: I think I just really enjoyed triple E thirty five signals and systems course. I think that's yeah. And then I thought, oh, DSP is doing a lot of those triple E thirty five. Then why not try it? And then. to be honest, I haven't actually tried applying to other labs. So I just only tried DSP and I really liked it. So applying DSP is that you get to have like different activities and that's how mm-hmm. they choose um, who, like, which applicants actually gets into the lab. So I, I just tried it and it's, it's all in MATLAB and like, yeah, different uh, processing because um, I think DSP back then had three uh, focus, like image, speech and audio processing so during the tasks that each applicant had to do we get to have a taste on what each um, area um, is doing so I, I said like oh this is really interesting and um yeah that's how i got into dsp
0: did you have a specific um industry that you want to get into like at that time did you know what you wanted to do after you graduate because i know you've been like you really want to do research and such but like back then, what was your mindset? Like were you still considering, oh, I wa- I think I want to go to industry afterward or like I know I'll do research, you know?
1: Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think I just, yeah, I really enjoyed doing my uh, my undergraduate thesis back then because I spent a lot of time in the lab doing it. So I thought like, oh, I think I fell in love um research and the fun. What I wanted to do back then, but then you know, like having parents telling you like oh, you should do like the the um the board exam and that's like doing the board exam for me, um it's not really kind of dSP side of things because yeah. like you know for the for the exam, it's more of like what industry is really doing, but then what I was doing in dSP. I think at least what is in the Philippines, the industry there is not really focused on DSP. I'm not sure if it's changed, but yeah, I thought um, I really wanted to do research. And um, yeah, I think that's what I wanted to do. But it's, you know, I was too young, I guess, back then. I didn't (laughs) really know what to do. But I mean,
0: yeah. Yeah, and touching a little bit on the board exam, like taking the board exam as an electronics engineer, I would definitely agree on that. Like, many, like the purpose of a professional licensure exam in the Philippines really is to, I don't, honestly, I don't really know what it is for other than the government ID that you get. But it just goes to show how much or how huge the field of electrical engineering could go. And it's it actually goes beyond. Uh, working for telecommunication companies and, you know, similar um, industries that are available in the Philippines. Basically, so after you graduated, you decide. what made you decide to, like, go work for this startup and, like, how did you find them and such? Do, they, do their goals align with at least what you wanted to, you know, learn more about after you graduate?
1: yeah so what happened was that like there's this startup company they're not really startup startup because I think it's been eight years since they yeah they were established I think eight years when they actually approached DSB so like um, the the head of the, the team, I think the the analytics team or something like that approached um, our lab heads, and they said like oh, we're this company doing a lot of like digital signal processing and then machine learning and then it kind of enticed me into applying to them and then luckily i managed to get the job and then that was the time when i was actually reviewing for my uh, for the board exam basically so um it was like yeah um they were saying stuff that actually made me want to be in that company mm. and um yeah, I didn't, yeah, we signed an NDA, so I can't really say yeah. um, what I did during those years year that I was there. But um, yeah, they said it was all digital signal processing.
0: And did they live up to your expectation of them? Or at least, um, was it worth it? Like, you stayed there for almost like 10 months, right?
1: Yes, um, 10 or 11 months, I think. Um, it, was, it was a good experience, I think, because I learned a lot something that I would not have learned in the university back then but I guess with the expectations that I had especially with what they said during the interview uh, they didn't really live up to what those expectations were and that's also part of the reason why I left the company I mean they're really doing machine learning and like signal processing but what they actually asked, asked us to do was more of the data mining part of things and I do I do like agree that handling a more intensive part of the company like doing the analysis part would be a big task to give for a a fresh um, employee in the company and I think that's their secret sauce if you may that like you know you can't really give it out but you know I thought that oh I would be able to work in that area of the analysis because um, that's what I really wanted to do. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, so yeah, um, companies really do have their own vision and I think it's just a matter of how do this company's vision and mission fit with your personal career career goals and how you want to like um, be better as a professional or if their vision matches with what you want to do in your life right so um after that um, experience with that startup you decided to go back to up and work with um uh, dr atianza right for his research so could you tell us a little bit about what enticed you to work with that research and then what did you get out of it afterwards
1: yes so um yeah just to just to clarify yes so I mean, the vision that the company had aligns with what I wanted to do, but then yeah, the job that I was getting was not what I really wanted to do. So that's the reason why I left. Had they given me um, the part of the job in the company that does the thing that I wanted to do, I wouldn't have left, I guess. But but yeah, the the thing that enticed me to go back to UP and do research with Dr. Atienza was that like, um, I think it was, A great project to work on. Um, So, just to give a background, it was a government project funded by DOSD, um, and it's about digitizing human beings. So, the premise was that we want to have, uh, or to rapidly create humanoid characters and um, motion um, in in a three D scene. So, Mm -hmm. you you can just use any like scanning device, scan a person and then you should be able to animate it quickly in a 3D environment. So that was the project. And, um, yeah, so I applied for it. I actually heard about it from a friend of mine and yes, I decided, no, oh, m- why not give it a try? And then I sent an application and then I got into it and I stayed there for a year and I got, um, a l- I learned a lot in that job as well. And, Thankfully, I managed to publish two papers related to the project. And I guess that kind of helped me um, to go where I actually am right now because yeah. of that paper. Because, yeah, um, that kind of was make presented. You, in,
0: right. Yeah. So that kind of made you a stronger candidate for, would you say, for a grad school application?
1: Yeah, I, I would say so. It, it really helped me because um, the the my supervisor is actually the head of the conference that i presented mm-hmm. to then so he, he wasn't the head i mean he wasn't the like the chair of the conference back when i presented it but then um after 5 years he was the chair so i mean he he knows about that conference so having read it um, for my application i think i think it really helped and it actually got me the um like the the chance to be interviewed in the position that I applied for. So we can go into the details, how I actually right. met my supervisor right. now after that. yeah. But yeah.
0: yeah, so um, prior to meeting your supervisor, you, you first have to get into Australia. Can you tell us the story or like how you got your first visa going to Australia? And yeah, when, so what my, was your timeline back then? Like it takes a while, right, to apply?
1: Yes, so it's really interesting because, um, you know, like parents, like my like m- my mom, um she she's like she always checks a lot of like opportunities that we could have. So there was a time when she went to U b, and I think that's when I got the admission letter back then, and, and we had the a, a tour around the campus in the u p college of Engineering. And she saw this small, like, flyer in one of the, not, like, the notice boards in, or the, the job posts, something like that. And then I think she, she took a photo or, like, she just noted about it saying, like, um, engineers, like, engineering graduates have this opportunity or visa to apply to Australia. And that was during the first year of my As degree. As in 2011? Yes, I think it was uh-huh. 2011 back then, and then she, for some reason, she actually, um, like, she, I don't know, she, for, for some reason, she she just realized that, like, oh, there was this post that I saw three years ago, I'm not sure if it's still up, but can you check it, like, she, she kind of forced me to check it if it's still available, um, if that 2015, that, that, that year that I graduated. So I, I searched the internet and then I found out that it's still available. And then she said like, why don't you apply? And I really didn't want to apply back then because I was like, why would I leave the country? Like, yeah. you know, it, I'm, I'm doing what I wanted to do here because I was doing research in UP back then. And I said like, like, meh, why would I leave? That's fine. And then she kind of forced me into trying and then I applied for it. And the, the visas, um, I think it's valid for one and a half years, yep. but that one and a half years won't start um, unless, I mean, if you haven't arrived in the country yet, it wouldn't start
0: yet. Right. But yep.
1: then You only have one year to actually um, like delay that. So I tried my best to actually delay that um, <laughs> before coming in. So my my visa would have started, even though I'm still in the Philippines. Um, by the day I left the country Um, so it was just the right time that I left so that that's how I get that's how I got mine
0: yeah then now you were in Australia then what happened like what were your goals initially going into Sydney yes
1: so uh, since everything seemed a bit rushed back then I didn't really have concrete plans to be honest I was just like, oh yeah, I can try looking for a job and I can do some research or if I can pursue graduate studies. And my mom always like tells me back then that like if if it fails, you can always go back to the Philippines. And I'm like, okay, that's fine then I'll, I'll, I'll risk it. No, why not? So yeah. for a year I was looking for um, universities and on the side also applying for jobs. And then I had, I got this um, invitation to be in, to be interviewed, basically, in, in UNSW. So it's the lab where I am in right now. It's It was for a senior software engineer position, but then I didn't, I, I'm not sure if I realized that I applied for a senior software engineer position back then, because I was just basically like blindly sending out my resumes, <laughs> those kind of stuff. And... Um, so I got into the interview and then met. It was a panel of interviewees. Um, one is from the yeah the head of the lab, one is from HR, one is uh, an employee in the lab, one is from the faculty itself. I think there were five people. And then so during the interview, I felt like oh maybe I won't get it when they said like oh this is actually for a software in, a senior software engineer. And then after the interview, I just. Talked to the guy beside me, basically, and said like, oh, if I didn't get the position, is there a chance for me to actually be part of the team by being a graduate student? And little did I know that the person beside me was actually the head of the lab, which is my supervisor right now. So had I known back then, I think, that he was the lab head, I wouldn't have asked. I wouldn't have asked him because I would be so terrified and afraid to ask about it. And I don't know, I, yeah, I just asked him and we exchanged emails and then there you go. I started my master's um, with his, um, as my supervisor. And, and then now I'm doing my PhD under his supervision as well. So that's the story behind it.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I think it's also part of like, I don't know if it's like an Asian thing that you're sometimes cared quote unquote to ask or just you know chase opportunities or something but then we get to learn to be you know more assertive as we experience like as our world gets bigger right so um when you talk your master so how was the I'm curious to learn or know how the research or project selection was because you um got into biomed sort of at least that's how I see it so how did that um, came to be?
1: Yes. So um, I think our lab is in a weird position, I think. So just a, a quick background. So it's like called Expanded Perception Interaction Center. And it's, in, it's sitting in art and design, basically. But it's a shared resource across the university. Um, So different people from different faculties actually go there and like do their stuff with us. And um, they can use all the resources that our center has. And during that time, I was actually the only student. So there are no other projects because it was relatively newly established lab. So I think it was actually the second year um, that that lab was established when I got there. So the research is mostly like... It wasn't driven by any project or any funding that needs to be done at least in my in 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 my perspective because I didn't know you know the politics behind how it's being run but um, the research that I wanted to do back then was you know AI and then also like doing computer graphics on the side and something that's helpful for people so we decided to to go into the track, or oh, why not use mixed reality or like, you know, HoloLens, for example, like you have these smart glasses and then you can help other adults navigate through through the house. So um, you, you use computer vision basically to detect objects and find obstacles along the way. And then in a sense, it should be able to help them if they're, for example, losing their sight or they get forgetful sometimes. And then, yeah, that, that was the whole, Um, um, masters that I did with that so I did some design workshops with older adults and then I let them try the device and then invite them to do some experiments yes
0: how long was this how was how long was this master's program
1: yeah so I did a master of philosophy which is a trans like in 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 our la- uh, like in in the university we have three masters so you can do masters by coursework which i guess what's mostly in the philippines at yes. least in yuki um so for two years you just take courses that's related to electrical engineering for example and we have masters by research which is one year you have this course and then one year to do your thesis but the path that I took was Master of Philosophy, which is a transition into PhD. So that two years was purely research. So you, you only took, I think I only, yeah, I only took one course um, that's about research foundations. And there is one elective that you can take that's related to your research. But the rest, it's all like supervisor driven or like self driven on where you want to go. Um, So that was the masters that I took two years.
0: So basically, by the time that you enrolled in your first in your masters program, you already knew that you wanted to do that. That is leading to you doing a PhD. Is that that's what I'm hearing? Is that correct?
1: Um, Yes. So I I thought back then that although I did a research like a research position under um, like doctor Atienza's supervision in the Philippines. I thought um, I still need um, like some, you know, training years before actually undertaking a PhD. So I thought, oh, maybe do a master of philosophy for two years and then do a proper, like do a PhD basically. Although during my first year, I was actually offered to upgrade to a PhD. But then I thought I wasn't really happy with the, With the topic that I chose for my Mm -hmm. master's. So I guess it was also like a way for me to just figure out oh, what do I really want to do for my PhD? And I guess that's what one of the most important things that you should consider when doing a PhD like, pursue a topic that really interests you.
0: Interests you, yeah. And then now, um, now leading to your PhD, how was the topic selection? Could you talk to us a little bit about the topic selection and how it works in Australian University?
1: Yes. So, so um, during my last semester for my master's, I was already discussing with my supervisor, like, oh, I want to do a PhD, but uh, I want to make sure that it's something that's related to medical area as well and mostly focusing on like AI so what happened was like my supervisor said oh I know someone from the CSE so CSE computer science and engineering because again we're sitting in autumn design although like my supervisor is also like a computer scientist but um, so we met with this supervisor which is yeah well she's my supervisor right now as well so we met with her and we talked about potential projects that i might interest yeah you know i might be interested in yeah. and um, one that really like touched my heart i guess was the autism research she was saying like oh, i have collaborators from unisdol medicine looking into using machine learning to de- detect autism and it's also video analytics so it's more in, more in the digital signal processing side so after that, I decided, okay, so I'll write my research proposal. Um, and then I sent it to them and then reviewed and then I applied and then I got in.
0: How detailed was this research proposal? Did you have to really um, have an idea on what the output or like what your dissertation is gonna be like or yeah, how detailed is it basically? Yeah, so it's
1: similar, it's similar to the Master of Philosophy proposal. So since I had this prior experience in writing a proposal before because yeah, my my Master of Philosophy degree um, required it as well. So I kind of had an idea on what it should look like. And uh, the NSW website also had that resource wherein like all of the research proposals should have at least this sections. So like basic introduction, research questions, methodology, and, like literature review and the conclusion, um, although it's you know like you're not sure if the methodology that you'll be using is really uh, what it's gonna be like, so I guess you continuously refine it. And I'm in my first year of PhD, so I'm gonna have my confirmation next month. So during my first year, I was constantly refining my proposal based from what I've read. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, initially you would would have this hypothesis and then only to find out that, like, oh, I read this literature and that I should change my proposal. Um, So, yeah, it's 1,500 to 2,000 word document. uh, I see. So it's kind of detailed in a sense.
0: And that's right before, that's even before you formally start your PhD? Yes, so that was part of the
1: admission process, basically. So you need to write that. proposal, And um, that's why I think when it comes to Australian PhD, in a sense, it's more like person-driven or the applicant-driven. It's really you who's driving the research because it's you who knows what direction you would want to take as compared to, I guess, other universities or other in the yeah in other countries we're in yeah 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 (laughs) we've
0: we've talked about this a lot offline like how u.s school applications are very different with Australian, and also in the uk and it really varies if someone is looking into a phd program it really varies per country um the process for getting a phd like for the u.s applications like i've told you about this like the u.s you would have you could talk to it differs, actually, I found out recently that it actually varies per university. Like in other universities, you can do like a rotation program and then from there, choose which lab you want to be part of based on the research interest that you currently have. Whereas other universities would actually require you to talk to a professor before you get admitted but then that professor's decision is not really going to be a make or break decision for the university to admit you as a student. Because overall, I think they they say they evaluate applicants based on their holistic, like holistically, basically. So that's, that's a pretty interesting difference between the Australia, UK, and the US. So, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Sorry. No, I was yeah, just, like just going to... Yeah,
1: go ahead. No, no
0: yeah. it's a different topic. So you could maybe wrap up that difference between yeah. PhD programs. I guess
1: for those people who really want want to try Australia, first you need to contact a potential supervisor because the university would require you to at least have talked to a person in the university who's mm-hmm. willing to actually supervise you. So for your application, you need to attach some kind of letter-like correspondence with a university lecturer or um professor that they're willing to supervise you and that you have actually made and refined your proposal in supervision with them so that's a really important thing i think that's also a hard part of it because you know you need to catch the supervisor's attention so you can start like blind emailing but you know you can't really um expect them to like reply quickly but i was so lucky that like you know i was in a meeting with the supervisor with my supervisor now and it was a face-to-face um yeah meeting that i had and he was fine with it so yeah that's a yeah good, i think <laughs> Just, yeah maybe
0: uh, before before i like move on to like the next part um I would just like to wrap up a little bit with because you mentioned that you have to write the proposal and all that. Does that mean, like, for your PhD, do you still take courses? So, maybe if you still need to improve on this specific expertise, like, do you have that capability or that ability to take, you know, classes to practice or something? Yeah, so I think.
1: And all PhD students need to take at least one research foundation course. So the basics of research, how to write a mm-hmm. proposal, how to conduct literature review, those kind of stuff. Um, but since I did it during my master's, I asked them to like, if I can waive it so that I don't need to take that course again, and they were fine with it. But when, when it comes to any course that's related to your research that you would want to take, you can audit a course you just need to tell the postgraduate coordinator about it and also talk to the lecturer in charge to be able to sit in and audit the class but then yeah you know like if you're actually attending the whole course and there's only a certain portion that you would want to focus on in your research then i guess you can like teach yourself i don't know <laughs> right. but that, but, yeah that's part of the research in Australia, I'd say, we're in like, yeah, you try to hone stuff, but that's a double-edged sword as well, because, you know, if you're kind of lost, then it might be hard to know, like, which subjects to actually study on the side.
0: Right. Yeah. And I guess one positive of that is that experience trains you to be better, to be more independent and like really trains you to be a good researcher that you can direct whatever... Hypothesis or problem you're trying to solve, and it only takes like three years, right? Ideally no, to get a four PhD, years. Or four, four years. Okay. So now um, you're in your second year. I'm
1: um, no. first year in the, towards the end of my first year. So yeah. Towards the saying.
0: end of your first year. So in the past few months, how has it been? Like, what was your like day in the life, looking at like as a PhD? Yeah, I
1: guess I'll start off by saying that, like, it's not the best time to actually start a PhD during a pandemic. (laughs) So I actually, I started my PhD March 2020, which is (laughs) exactly the time the
0: pandemic started.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly the month when the pandemic started. And I think it was, like, only a few weeks after I started when the university decided that, oops, we're going to close down because there's lockdown, those kind of stuff. So it it was a bit tough, but then I guess I was a bit driven because I thought, oh, this is really something that I want to do. Because
0: mm-hmm.
1: my masters, I I be honest with it, I didn't really enjoy my topic that much. Um, so I guess it's it's a driving force for me now because I'm working on something that I really want. So my yeah my day would be going to uni around 8.30. I just walk to uni in 22, 25 minutes. And then I start working nine to like one, then have my lunch and then do a quick workout and then go back to the lab and then go home around 6 p.m. So that's my morning, um, daily routine, I'd say. But that's a month ago because, you know, the university just started reopening But during the lockdown, I was basically stuck in the room, you know, in in my house and doing my research little by little and um, having some morning walks around the block if I feel a bit um, bored or underdocted. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can I just say that your schedule is like the epitome of a good grad student? Other grad students would just like stay over time in the lab and like work. 60 hours 70 hours a week so i feel like having a good routine at least like you were able to embody it and are you able to maintain it at least for most of the time yes so i'm slowly building
1: yeah good habit of doing that like i'll be honest i wasn't that like consistent back then especially during the pandemic but then I think the goal was just to keep going, (laughs) right? Um, And keep doing the routine just in case. Um, When it comes to that postgraduate student staying up late in the lab, like sometimes I think it's yeah, it's burning. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've done that during my master's degree, and uh, it was good because like you get to do stuff, um, a lot of stuff. But you know, like I. I think that's also a part of the Australian um, culture is that there's work-life balance here. Um, yeah, so I see my supervisor, like, just, just I don't know if, if I'm, like, taking up too much time explaining it, but just a context, so my supervisor right. did his PhD in Japan. So the, the culture yeah. there was, like, mm. apparently he works, works starts hard. working at 6am, yeah. because the, the the main premise is that you should be there before your supervisor and until your supervisor leaves. But the thing about his supervisor is that, like, I think he starts at 7 and then leaves around 7. So he was yeah. telling me that, like, oh, I'm in the lab 6 a.m. until, like, for example, 8 to 9 p.m. So whenever he sees me in the lab, he's like, oh, why are you still here? Or, like, you know, because it's the Australian... Um, culture to not be in the lab for that late but sometimes he jokes around and said like you're already going home like in Japan (laughs) we used to stay until like 9 p.m. and then yeah so I guess it's really different as well yeah it's
0: kind of like a cultural thing in addition to like how you try to know build a good habit and just get things focusing on what things you get done over how long you've worked for the same amount of output right so it seems like um you're having like a great time doing your phd and all so i know it could be a difficult to or yeah it could be challenging to think of one thing but uh, what do you think is the best experience or like the most interesting experience that or exciting experience that you've had so far
1: In, in, in what's in, in your like,
0: uh, it depends on how you want to take it. like what's the most exciting thing that you've experienced throughout your you know PhD or research journey so far?
1: Um, I think I'll go to the most unconventional thing. Um, I, I'd not, yeah, I would not say the most exciting thing is like publishing a paper and those kind of stuff, but being able to actually, volunteer in a conference so um, you, you know usually a researcher would go to a conference to present and you know like network with researchers but I go to the most unconventional part and say like I did my bare bit of con- like volunteer job in a conference which is the biggest um, like computer graphics conference in the world and there were 16,000 attendees and I volunteered through that. And I think it's a unique experience to be able to connect with students. Um, yeah, that's, that's exciting. Because I think if I just say like, oh, being able to present in a conference, it's right. like a common thing that any PhD student would say. Um, but yeah, I guess being able to network and you know just mm-hmm. chill in a conference. Uh, just meet people
0: and, and not worry about presenting your own paper. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think that's a good, good experience yeah. that I've experienced.
0: Um, could you touch a little bit on the topic of collaboration? Like right now you're collaborating with, is it an MD, PhD in neuroscience, like psychiatry or something, right? So how, how yeah, is so, it so far?
1: Yeah, so I did collaboration during my master's as well with the local community center to be able to like schedule any workshops with older adults so that's another part but right now i guess that's where i'm going to focus on so i'm collaborating with a lot of doctors in unisw psychiatry and uh, prince of Wales hospitals and other hospitals as well to be able to conduct my research and um it's really fun to have like different viewpoints in research i guess because you know we tend to be siloed in our own yeah. research area and we don't really like i guess how do i say it like it's good to collaborate because yeah it, it gives different perspectives and for example in computer Thank science you. or engineering we focus on the tech side of things but then i don't know i think i'm not sure if i have not taken any elective <laughs> that i should have taken Le Man. but i maybe there's entrepreneurship maybe but um I think you took that one, didn't you?
0: I did, yeah. Yeah, It's kind of different. Like, it's different if you actually work closely with, say, a physician or something, you know, rather than just observing or, you know, doing research on what they do.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I I was leading in in a way that, like, I think my upbringing, at least, in, in, I'm not generalizing, it's just my own um, experience, is that I didn't really think, of oh, um, actually how do I say it um, I didn't think of the user who's going to use my yeah. technology basically yeah. I was just mostly focused because my undergrad thesis was about um, automatic speaker um, diarization so basically you have a continuous audio stream and I don't want to get into the details mm-hmm. of it but Um, basically the way you quantify the performance is just by a number but but I guess uh, an important aspect of it is how will that translate into a user's perspective in a way Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess that's what I was lacking so in in a collaborative environment I think that's when you actually have a time to think about those kind of things so in my own research right now I was yeah I was initially thinking that, like, I should include clinicians, physicians, who's gonna use Mm -hmm. my system and make sure that it's usable, it's useful for them, not just quantifying all my AI is able to detect autism at this percentage. Um, I guess it goes hand in hand. Like, although the system might not be that high in, um, you know, diagnosing, then if, if physicians think it's valuable if they can see the use of it then yeah i guess it's better than having a system that's 100 percent accurate but not usable right. You know? right
0: yeah 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 i definitely hear what you're saying that i could attest to that like as an engineer sometimes we get too excited with the technical details of things and we forget that oh, okay okay maybe this is gold standard or like state-of-the-art technology but the question of, is this going to be used by the intended users of this innovation? Um, sometimes we do forget that. So it's good to be reminded that, or it's good to be reminded that, okay, we're actually doing research for a purpose and getting those feedback from the actual users or getting a different perspective of how it could potentially make the world a better place, if you want to say it that way. It's definitely
1: yeah, so, a good training to have. Yeah, um, I, I just give a quick example. So there's a there's this, like an increasing number of papers publishing in autism. No, it's actually computer science arena. And, um, they were saying like, oh, we're using eye tracking, for example, to diagnose autism. But then when I actually like talked to clinicians who also did some eye tracking study and. The, the eye tracking data that they have collected that's what I'm analyzing right now mm-hmm. the clinicians actually were saying that like to be honest I would not use a system that uses eye tracking because in my practice it's really hard for for me to let the kids look at the camera or like the screen and yeah. have their eye tracking like data collected so I guess you know why are computer scientists and engineers saying that like Oh I can use this system, and it's this accurate when clinicians are saying that like, well, it, like, it's really hard to collect data, like you know have them sit still because you know kids with autism tend to have um, less um, attention um, span, so yeah, they, they say like oh, it'd be better if we approach it in a different way. So I guess yeah, collaboration is really important mm-hmm. in
0: sense. yeah, yeah, for sure so maybe to starting like like wrap up a little bit so if you could reflect on how or look back and see how you have changed or your perspectives have changed so far um throughout the years what would you say like or how would you describe how you like grow to grew to be a better researcher? and then maybe end with since my interest is personally in biomedical engineering is that if there is if there is something or advice that you would give to a student who would like to get into biomed or pursue a career trajectory similar to yours like yeah maybe talk about that a little bit wait so, so this first, is your so,
1: question is it yeah
0: yeah th- th- those are two different questions so first maybe yeah. reflect on how you've grew, grown so far like yeah how your perspectives have changed throughout the years to where you currently are right now yeah maybe that okay. one first
1: okay so i guess i'll start off with saying that i was really uncomfortable at first because again i was in art and design and coming from an engineer electronics engineering background and we told it like oh you're doing design um it was counterintuitive for me and uh but but throughout the years I have come to realize that design is not the design that I thought it was like designing is not just, you know, drawing or doing stuff, but designing a technology that is really helpful for the benefit of the users and that's useful and you know, those kind of stuff. So I guess in that sense I've grown into thinking that like technology it's not just about the numbers and how accurate it is. It's also about yeah, making it usable and useful for people, and making sure that you can you know users can trust it as well. So I guess it's the design side of me now is um, talking more in the engineering side. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's how I've grown and. I guess yeah it's more independent now um, when it comes to the research directions so my supervisor always tells me that like no we can't tell you what you're gonna do so we're just here to like say that oh you might be um like going to the wrong direction but the main driver of the research is you so i guess um that's that's one of the important changes that
0: yeah that's really that's awesome, and that's something that you could actually um, make use of like in your career later on. So yeah, maybe we can end with this one question. Um, if there's one thing that you would tell someone who wants to pursue a career or a career tra- trajectory similar to yours, maybe someone who would like to do a PhD or do research on, in the biomedical engineering space a little bit, what would it be?
1: Hmm. So I guess
0: um, for someone who would like to get into AI in biomed, is it kind of does that like phrase what you're currently doing right now, or am I being like, oh, that's not it?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, that's that. Yeah, I'm 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 using eye gaze data and then video um, data sets as well to detect autism. So I'm using AI for that, but I think when I guess two two things that I'd say, um, if you're gonna do PhD, I think the research trajectory, like for someone who wants to do research, the trajectory that they wanna that they should follow, it's really hard to say. Um, But okay, I think I'll start off with saying like one, it's important to look for a supervisor that's gonna be there to always support you, um, because Technically, you'll be working with them for four years and having someone who's just gonna um, leave you behind and let you, like, you know, not, I don't know. Um, yeah, but be sure to look for a supervisor, but I guess that's also hard to know. Um, so to 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 know at first that they're a good supervisor, maybe talk to people who, who's who's been supervising and and see how the supervisor was during their candidature that's a good thing to follow second is that you need to make sure that what you're doing is what you really want to do um because i had this problem before and um yeah during my master's i didn't really enjoy my topic and uh, and um it was a a bit of a stretch for me because you know you're constantly working on something that's not inspiring me so for my phd at least now i'm really I can say I'm. I can dedicate more time doing this because that's what I'm mostly passionate about. Um, For the trajectory, um, yeah, I think it's it's about upskilling yourself as well. Like, um, you need to learn to be more independent and and know. I don't know if I'm preachy, but I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure if <laughs> I am in the right position to like say what they should do. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm still navigating through this this entire thing as well. But I'd say yeah, be independent and just keep going.
0: <laughs> Any advice for undergrads? <laughs> for
1: because
0: so I'm asking this because, you know, if you're when you're still an undergrad, especially in uh, electrical engineering, right, sometimes um, courses can be just so difficult that you don't know what you're studying, why you're studying it and something. So maybe if you could, you know, give some tips or words of, I don't know, as someone who has gone through that process to undergrads.
1: How to survive,
0: um, survive or succeed in and in electrical engineering?
1: It's a really interesting <laughs> question looking back, I think I really enjoyed undergrad because that's when yeah. Hmm, wait, maybe think to- of the
0: th- think of the time when we were studying triple E forty one and we would, you know, um, have group studies and then others would stay up all night, others would sleep, and then how that paid off later on. Like, What did you learn from those difficult experiences or really terrifying moments that we've had? I don't know if you had terrifying moments, but I did.
1: <laughs> I think it, it really prepares you. Um, I'd say uh, I'd say at least in UB, it really prepared us to what is out there. It, if not, it's a bit more terror actually because I think I don't know. UP is known to be that terror university where like people cry after exams and stuff. But I can assure you that it's all worth it <laughs> because it's it, like those pressure that you feel during your courses. Like yeah, your courses might be like yeah. Yeah, it's really terrifying, but it prepares you. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's an interesting take on on that um, issue or on that, like getting a different perspective. So, yeah. Um, well, I think we can wrap up, like, end on that note. And good luck with PhD. And I hope, like, you know, y- you get to work. More or collaborate more with the doctors, and that this thesis or dissertation that you're currently doing actually be something that will be used by um, patients. Maybe not in the near term, or like in the long run, be something that could actually, you know, um, revolutionize. If I should say that um, autism ASD, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I yeah. hope so too. So. Um, that's that's my goal because, I mean, over the years it's all subjective, the way people, you know, diagnose autism, it, I think it's the right time. I mean, yeah, the, the CS side of things, the engineering side of things, I think it's ready than ever to actually yeah. be able to quantify, in a sense, in a behavioural perspective. Um, yeah, just quantify this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, well, thanks, Rai.